Morning, church. Went out for a run last night, pulled a muscle in my leg. Didn't expect that to matter this morning, but it did, didn't it? Who else enjoyed worship for everyone? So I don't know if you noticed this, but early in Donald Trump's presidency, he found himself compared to a gargoyle. Now, potentially, you think this is just an unusual insult, but no. What connects your Anglican diocese with the 45th president of the United States is that apparently one of the gargoyles at Southminster looks like him. If you turn your attention to the screens, you'll be able to see a comparison. Which is which? There are a lot of gargoyles around the place at Southall, most of which are closer to the kind of thing you'd expect a gargoyle to look like, something more like this. And the other day, I found myself driving past Southallminster with a carload of kids on our way to the river to celebrate my eldest's eighth birthday by hiring a boat and letting the kids drive. We only crashed once. <laughs> but as we passed the Minster, I pointed it out because that's where we ordain people. So my family and I will be there on Saturday coming, along with the co-founder of the International Ministry of the Orchard, Amy Hughes, to be ordained priests in the Church of God. I pointed out the minster, and one of the kids in the back asked about the gargoyles. Why are they there? What are they for? Initially, I wasn't really sure what to say. It was only when another child suggested that they might deter burglars that the theologian in me rose up and I felt the need for an educational moment. And so ensued a surreal conversation in which I tried to explain to a car full of kids about the beliefs of those that had made the building, the role of gargoyles in warding off evil spirits, and the reality of a spiritual world. What really took my breath away, though, was when my own child piped up, yeah, my nana's seen an angel. Up until this point, I thought I'd done a relatively good job of maybe teaching, not preaching, even if I was a little bit worried about what other parents might hear from their beloved children. My son continued, this man helped her push the car up a hill, and when she turned around, he'd completely vanished. Not for the first time. Didn't know what to say. Because often... I think we don't actually know how to talk about spiritual things, do we? That's the purpose of this series that we're in, this Spirit Life series. As Johnny spoke about last week and as we heard read today, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be uninformed. And likewise, we don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want to be uninformed. And so today, I want to push a little deeper into some of the things Johnny spoke about last week and try to give a little bit of wider context and help you begin to think about what it might look like to test the spirits in John's language. But if we're going to do this, I think we will have to question some of the things that we take for granted, some of the things that go without saying in our time and place, in our culture. And a way of doing that is by thinking about other cultures, thinking about uh, different situations removed in time and place, because it can show up what we're taking for granted. So to begin with, will you join me in time traveling back to Southallminster and its gargoyles? There are various eras of construction evidenced in that building, but today we're going to travel back to the 1500s, and more specifically to 1549, and the writing of an edition of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer under King Edward I. 
Why? Because in this book, ministers like me are told that they should put communion wafers directly into your mouth. Why? Because people previously had, and I quote, kept it with them and diversely abused it to superstition and wickedness. What does that mean? It means that if I don't put this in your mouth, you might slip it into your pocket, leg it home, and furtively bury it in your field to try to ensure a more substantial harvest. As your minister, I don't want you to do that. That might not come as a shock, but why might? It's not because it's weird. It's because you're messing with a powerful object, like a toddler playing with uranium. I'll come and bless your field, but don't eat and drink God's judgment on yourself. You see, the world that the peasant farmer lived in in 1549 was a world full of spiritual forces which interacted with real things like fields and bodies. And God wasn't the only power around. There were evil spiritual forces around, which is why you need God's power over your field and protecting your minster in Southall. If you fast forward 500 or so years... The way that we think about these things has changed. Today, I will happily hand you a wafer and not make sure you swallow it because you're not going to steal it and try and stick it into the USB drive on your computer to make your marketing plan more magical. That's just not how the world works. The Eucharist, the host, the wafer is not a powerful object in our imagination anymore. It isn't necessary to help us navigate the power fields of our world. In fact, today, we master the world by technology. Just think about the farmer, not necessarily a peasant this time. She no longer needs to steal the Eucharist because she can GPS track the location of each individual seed as it is planted. I say this not to mock the peasants of the 1500s, but to highlight that we live in a completely different culture when it comes to thinking about spiritual things. In a really influential essay, the New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann said, we cannot use electric lights and wirelesses, which maybe dates this. We cannot use electric lights and wirelesses, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Now, when you put it that way, it's maybe a little bit less comfortable, isn't it? It's actually not the case that in the 1500s, everyone was just a superstitious idiot, because they weren't. They were skilled at interacting with the powers that they perceived. In fact, from the vantage point of most times and places in human history, you and me are the weird ones, because we don't really recognize spiritual power. This makes it really difficult to read something like 1 John, talking about testing the spirits and seeing if they're antichrist, and make sense of it. Is that not the kind of language that actually belongs in a horror film? 
This, I think, is what Rudolf Bultmann's actually getting at. In, a world, in the world that you and I live in, power works at the flick of a switch. So why would I ever invoke a spiritual force? It doesn't make sense anymore. So you and me need to pay attention to that. Because this means that when it comes to testing or discerning spiritual things, we are not starting from a neutral position. We actually start at a disadvantage. Because what isn't important to you, you don't focus on. What you don't focus on, you don't speak about. And what you don't speak about, you will eventually struggle to see. If you're not sure about that, let me try to illustrate this by thinking about color. So we've gone back in time to visit one different culture. We're going to try and go and visit a different culture in space now. Um, as in within the world, but in a different place. So here's a color wheel. Now hopefully you can see that. For most of us, this will appear very similar. If you're colorblind, it might look different. If you're subject to some kind of visual impairment, it may look even more different. But even if you perceive color differently, this is the agreed standard. This is how color works, isn't it? Well, actually, only in our culture, the himbas, an isolated, uh, the Himbas, an isolated offshoot of the Herero tribe in Namibia, Namibia, actually see it very differently. They distinguish between what for us are incredibly subtle shades of green. Let me show you another color wheel. This is a color wheel for which they have a distinct name for each and every shade. Now, I guarantee you, if I wasn't showing you those in a circle, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between all of them very easily. It actually takes them less time to distinguish between what they see on this color wheel than it does for them to distinguish between, um, between one which has a blue shade in it. So it's, they name more quickly the colors in the one on the right than they do in the one on the left. It takes them longer to identify the shades on this second color wheel because, as this next graphic shows, those two colors, the blue and the green, have the same name, Baru. This tribe, they don't focus on the difference between those shades. And so they don't speak about it. And ultimately, this makes it more difficult for them to even see it. The same way that you and I could never pick out the differences between the greens. Why? Because what you don't focus on, you don't speak about, and what you do not name, you lose the ability to see. Can you see the issue now with living in a world of electric lights and wirelesses or Spotify and modern medicine? It's not that any of these things are inherently wrong. It's that they can blind you to some of the realities of the spirit and wonder world that the New Testament takes for granted, that the whole Bible takes for granted. And there's no way back out of this situation. You can't turn all the lights off and refuse to engage with modern medicine because they're options. There's no way back. This, 
I think, is actually why it's difficult for me to speak about gargoyles. How do you tell some kids that have grown up with iPads that there are real spiritual forces all around them and not just come off crazy? Because like it or not, the idea that there are spiritual forces all around us, that's the biblical position. Both Old and New Testament refer to an extensive range of spiritual forces. Angels, demons, so far so good. Cherubim, seraphim, powers of the air, the ruler of the air, principalities, the elements of this world, unclean spirits, Satan, the devil, Leviathan, Rahab, chaotic waters, Baal, Asherah. In Job, God the God that we worship has a divine council of spiritual beings that he meets with, and Satan's in that. That's not normally the way that we think about this stuff. Actually, in the Old Testament, the thing that marks out the God of Israel isn't even that he's the only one of a particular kind. It's that he's sovereign over any and every spiritual He's powerful over every and any other spiritual force. And that's the same thing that John says in our reading today. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It's not necessarily an easy thing to imagine God being active in a world so distant from the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. But it's possible that he's the same God and that the same powers still exist and that they're still at work. So if that is true, what does it look like for you and me to navigate that world? How do we test the spirits? I want to suggest three things to you, maybe three steps. I'm not quite sure if they build on one, uh, one another. As we were driving along in the car past Southerminster, It took a child to notice the gargoyles, and it took my son to start speaking about encounters with angels. Why? These are not things that are part of my mental furniture. I'm being honest with you here. What you don't focus on, you don't speak about. What you do not name, you lose the ability to see. When Paul writes to the Corinthians that they shouldn't be uninformed, He's probably mocking them because they were over-informed to the point that they thought they could decide when and where God was doing something and they could be in charge of that. We've possibly taken the same point to its complete reverse conclusion, deciding that we can pretty well master the world without God, that there's nowhere that he really needs to do anything. The reality is that the cosmos rests like a feather on the breath of God, that God calls it into being in each and every moment, that creation in every moment sings the praises of this God and that you and I are invited into that song. That is the reality. More, the reality is that there are discordant notes that come from spiritual forces that are not God. Step one is opening your eyes to the Spirit and allowing the possibility that this is the true state of the world. You have to notice these things to test them. 
First, open your eyes to the Spirit. Second, wait on God. In our reading, John draws a contrast between those who speak from the viewpoint of the world and those who are from God. So what's the viewpoint of the world? What does it want to say? And what does it mean to be from God? In the world that you and I inhabit, knowledge is power. That's axiomatic. We all believe it. It's a proverb. When we speak from this viewpoint, when you speak from this viewpoint, if you know how to do something, you can make it happen. If you can make stuff happen, you win at life. So life becomes a game which is played at increasing pace where we all go out to try to make stuff happen and the winners make the most stuff happen the quickest. And these are the rules of the game. And we know the winners because they have the most stuff. In this kind of game, standing still is going backwards. But the contrast that John draws is between those who speak from the viewpoint of the world and those who are from God. You see, if there's a bigger, wider reality of which you can only see a part, then the most important things might be happening elsewhere. And if your very being is a gift from God, then maybe you should be playing a different game. You can receive your life as a gift, and as an invitation to encounter God. You can step back from making stuff happen and wait on God. Think about Jesus. What does he do? Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. His eyes are open and his pace is not breakneck. He wins by doing what he sees the Father doing and not by doing what the world around him expects. So open your eyes to the Spirit. Step two is waiting on God so that success is defined in relation to the reality that you've begun to notice. You have to know the standard to test these things. Open your eyes to the Spirit. Wait on God and lean into Christ. This is key to how you test spirits. When John writes about an antichrist spirit, that word only occurs in this letter, 1 John. He's talking about spiritual forces which want to achieve the opposite of what Christ is about in the world. And that's why there's such a strong link with love. Listen to this again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Hold on to that. Compare it with this. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Having the Spirit and loving are both the marker of living in God because they are one and the same. You know what an antichrist spirit is because it sets itself up against love. 
not against schmaltzy sympathy and niceness, but against love. It's whatever corrupts and turns inwards and ruins relationships. It's whatever cuts against you receiving your life as a gift that God gave, not to you, but to the world to advance his kingdom. We are in a spiritual battle, but the shape of it shouldn't surprise you. This is a fight against the triumph of God's love for his entire creation. So waiting on God, our second point, it doesn't actually mean doing nothing. It doesn't mean sitting still. It means joining in as God outworks his love in the world. Not running ahead or outside of that, but not settling for anything less. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. And he is greater by laying his life down in utter love. So expect it to look like that. Step three is leaning into Christ and walking out his love in every sphere. Fundamentally, you test spirits by figuring out whether they're walking with you or walking against you as you walk with Christ. You lean into Christ. This tells you whether you need to work with them or stand against them. And you can do this without fear. Why? Because he is greater and his greatness is his love. And he's in you. You see, this love is the pattern of God's life. And so is the pattern for God's people, God's church. You, me, the church should always be on fire so that the city can be alive. Trinity Church Nottingham is not here so that you can be part of a vibrant community, experience great worship, jump up and down and dance and break, 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 and drink decent coffee. It's not here so that you can hear wonderful teaching, thank God, and be challenged. It's not even here so that you can be healed. What? All those things are important, but they serve God's love. And God's love isn't for the church, it's for the world. Trinity Church Nottingham is here like every other church around the city and around the world. The church of God in the earth. Because God intends his love to triumph throughout the whole of creation. The church exists because God loves the world. So, church, amen. Recognize, recognize that you're part of a spiritual reality. Open your eyes to the Spirit. Let that define success. Wait on God. And walk out his love in every sphere. Lean into Christ. I want to invite you this week. Spirit, spirit life is about this. Open your eyes. Wait on God. Lean into Christ.